Okay, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17 again as we continue in our study about the true Lord's Prayer, the high priestly prayer that he, I think, praised in the, in the presence of his disciples so that they will understand uh, his prayer to the Father and all that that entails and what that means for them. So I want to read, um, starting this morning, we're going to read from verse 1 down through verse 12, and then we'll go from there. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 17, these things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou, givest, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. was. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understand that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those, of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all things that, that are thine, I mean all things that are mine, are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, we're going to continue in what we began last week, or the week before, in this understanding of what Jesus is praying on their behalf to the Father in their presence here on the Mount of Olives. Again, the setting is Thursday evening as they have traveled from the Lord's Supper in the, in the room that they had in Jerusalem. And they've gone out to the Mount of Olives. And now they're going, he has been teaching them things in his last presentation to them before the cross. And now he is, uh, the last thing he says is this prayer to the Father before they leave and go to the Garden of Gethsemane And then he begins to pray alone about the upcoming crucifixion. So, a little bit of a review from last week. The first thing he says is the hour has come. And the hour has come is the hour of the execution of the eternal covenant. So we know from other scriptures that before the foundation of the world, God entered into an eternal covenant between the Godhead. And through this, we see the roles of the deity being played out in this purpose of God to bring to fruition a eternity with redeemed humanity along with the chosen or elect angels that God is going to have for all eternity. And so this purpose of God that the lamb that was foreordained before the foundation of the world to take away the sins of the world was part of this eternal covenant where God purpose to save men and redeem men by becoming one of them through the the person of the word becoming flesh and having that person identify with man 
as a man, but not in the sense of coming out of Adam, but in the sense of coming directly from God as the only begotten Son of God, to be the one that could identify with mankind, that could die in his flesh, but yet be a perfect sacrifice for the rest of humanity or the ones that God chose to save. And so that was the eternal covenant. And now the hours come to execute this, this eternal covenant in which he is going to actually go to the cross and have his body become sin for the rest of those whom God has chosen to redeem. And that's what he's talking about. The hour has come. So the hour has come to execute this eternal covenant that was from all of eternity before the foundation of the world that God purposed to do that. Any questions about that part of it? This, is, this was purposed and planned and uh, performed by God before the foundation of the world. And then he says, that the, son may be, that the Son may glorify thee, and even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that, thou, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. So in that part of the eternal covenant, all those that God foreknew, in Romans chapter 8, he says, all those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And we talk, we, we under, we've talked about that. To be conformed to the image of his Son means to be brought to an eternity glorified in the same way that the Son has been glorified in the flesh. So when he's talking about the Son there being glorified, he's talking about deity, this, the Word that became flesh. God is spirit. So before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, you had all three persons of the Trinity equally the same. All spirit beings. And then one person of that Trinity became flesh. The Word became flesh. So at a moment, deity became visible, became manifested in a body, which would never happen before. And so here he is, he's saying, glorify me, and I and will glorify thee, and, and thou glorify me. And then he says, of all the, that I have been, he's given him authority over all mankind, which means he has authority over all mankind, to either bring them with him to eternity in a glorified state, conform to the image of his son, or to have them judged into an eternal state of the lake of fire. He has given all authority to him to judge all mankind. So all mankind is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And then he says, to all, to all thou hast given him that he may give eternal life. So before the foundation of the world, those whom God foreknew, that means that those whom God foreknew in a emotional, loving way. Before the foundation of the world, God set his affection on those whom he chose to save. Those whom he elected, those whom he chose to save, he set his affection on them and he, he knew them in a loving relationship before the world was ever created. And all those whom he knew in this way, he has given to the Son as a love gift. And that's why in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. He says in verse 35 of John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And then he goes down, down there and he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I will lose nothing, but will raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. So all those that behold the Son and believe in Him are manifesting that they are the ones given by God the Father to the Son to be redeemed by Him. 
And so everyone that is chosen of God, that is given to the Son by the Father, is born of the Spirit, and out of that birth of the Spirit, they believe in Jesus Christ, and it manifests that they are the children of God because they have believed in Jesus Christ, and they believe in Jesus Christ because they've been born of the Spirit, and they're born of the Spirit because they're given to the Son, and they're given to the Son because God chose them from the beginning. Is that clear? Makes sense. It's all of God. And we respond. And you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Because if you are born of the Spirit, you cannot help but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because you have the nature of God in you, and the nature of God cannot not believe in God. So it comes from God, and it flows out from you, and as it flows out from you, it manifests that you are the ones chosen of the Father, given to the Son, and born of the Spirit. So you have the Trinity involved in this eternal covenant to bring about the reality that God has purposed from the beginning. And so that's what he's, yeah, that's what he's saying here. And so in this... That he may give eternal life. Jesus Christ gives eternal life. And this is eternal life that they may know thee. So having a relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father is eternal life. You cannot know the Father in this way. You cannot know Jesus Christ in this way. And it not be eternal. It is the life that comes from God and it is eternal. That's what 1 John 1 is talking about. When John is, again, writing the book of 1 John. And he says in verse 1, that was what was from the beginning that we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. The eternal life is Jesus Christ. He is eternal life. So he goes down there and he says in chapter 2, in verse 25, or verse 24, it says, And as for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. You go to the end of chapter 5, First uh, John chapter 5, and he says in verse 11, And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He, do not, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So eternal life is having a living relationship with God Almighty through the Son of Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. If you know the Son, that means you are known of the Father, and if you're known of the Father, He has granted you eternal life that comes through His Son. So that is eternal life, having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's not about having a ticket to go to heaven or hell. It's about having a relationship with Almighty God. And that relationship will only come about by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the belief and faith in Jesus Christ and having salvation in His name. Okay, so, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorify thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do, and now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus says, I have glorified thee. In other words, I have represented you perfectly, and I have gone to the cross. I've gone to the cross. He's speaking of it like his past tense. I have finished my work. I've gone to the cross to glorify you in that I fulfilled everything that was purposed for me to fulfill perfectly as the perfect Lamb of God, never once sinning or causing anything to be contrary to the person and the essence and the revelation of God in every way. And now he says, Glorify thou me, 
so that I can return to the Father. So in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about this uh, humiliation, humbling of himself. So in Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul is writing to the Philippian church. He says, have this attitude, in verse 5, have this, attitude, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, now every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here again, he humbled himself, not holding on to his deity, but taking on the form of humanity so that he might be identified with humanity and he might die because God can't die. He had to have a body of flesh that could die. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about the fact that he had to become one of us in order to die for us. So in Hebrews chapter 2, he says that clearly. His incarnation was important so that he could die. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. He didn't die for angels, but he died for man, and he became a man so that he might take their place. He had to take on flesh to be able to die and identify with human beings and to die for them and to take their place. And now he says, now glorify me, glorify me together with thyself, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now how is, how is Jesus glorified? What's going to happen that's going to cause him to be glorified? The resurrection. Okay, when you look at the resurrection, Jesus was resurrected in a glorified body. But in that body did he exhibit the glory of God in its fullness? No. He appeared to people after he was resurrected. He appeared to Many. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to however many it was that he appeared to. It says in 1 Corinthians how many he appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15 during his walk after his resurrection. Okay? Now, compare that with what John saw when he went to heaven to get the revelation that's recorded in Revelation, to get that revelation. Compare what John saw of the resurrected Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, in verse 12, it says, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstand stands one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the, to the feet, 
girded across his breast with a golden girdle, and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, which had been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Now, when Jesus goes back to the Father... He is manifested with the glory that he had prior to him becoming a man. And you see that glory manifested to John. It was not manifested on earth to people on earth. It was manifested in heaven in a way that was not manifested. Even though he was resurrected and even though he had a glorified body, it did not represent the glory that he had from the Father in the beginning until he got to heaven and then John saw him in heaven. And that's the glory they're going to see when he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're going to see that glory of Almighty God. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference now and prior to him becoming a man? It's amazing to me. Before the beginning of the world, you had the deity in three persons, equally spirit beings, equally full of the essence and the glory of God to the utmost. All completely God. Now you've got Jesus Christ who became a man for all eternity is going to have a body that we see. He is not the invisible God. He is not the spirit God. He is the glorified God that, is having, that has a body that we will see face to face and we will be like him in the sense that we will also have a glorified body, but he will have a glorified body that expresses the deity of God in a fleshly form forever and ever. So God, who is always spirit, eternally, has now become visible. Lord. Their uh, concept is that uh, he's going to be anthropomorphic, look like a man <coughs> in flesh. Yes. But the people who saw him on earth will not recognize him as the uh, individual. It'll be completely different. They saw him on earth as a resurrected body, as a resurrected being, but when they see him in heaven, it will be full of the... The hair color is going to be different. His hair is going to be white as wool. And it's his... Uh, the, the glory that shines from his face will be like the sun. And that's the only description that I'm sure that the, the writers had to identify is we can't look at the sun because it's so bright. But the glory that comes from God is, is, that, is that, kind of, that kind of brightness. This so. is the way he appeared to John. In heaven. Yes, yes, yes. That's what John saw. And the reaction John had was he fell down as a dead man. Because, I mean, it was, he didn't, they didn't the, the apostles didn't fall down as dead men when they saw him in a resurrected body on earth. But when John saw him, it was, it was totally different. Okay. So just, get, just got to get an idea of that, that this is an amazing thing that God became a man, and God will always have the form of man. He will always have hands and uh, wrists that have a nail print in them and a, a piercing in his side that will be a testimony for all eternity, a memorial of his crucifixion. Uh, just an observation, I get your thoughts on it. The uh, first four says, we're fighting on earth, I will fight on earth, having accomplished what he had given me to do. Now, he hadn't died yet, and it wasn't until he said, it is finished, where it was really accomplished. 
but it is, it, 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 he is speaking to God the Father as if, as, if, as if it's already been accomplished because it's been accomplished in the mind of God and the purpose of God. And so it's just as, just as, it's just as having had been done. So he's praying, he's praying in, in the sense that it's already accomplished. I'm finished. The work is finished. I've got to go through it, but it's already as good as done. Okay. Now, in verse 6, it says, I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest unto me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. Now, he is speaking to them that his apostles, his disciples, have come to know. They have come to know and believe that he is from the Father, and they believe that he is God. They have a saving knowledge of God. They have a saving knowledge of understanding the things that, that Jesus Christ represented to them. And they understand that because they are born again. Okay, they are born again and they have a saving knowledge of God. They will not understand. They will not understand all that's transpiring and all that's taking place until Pentecost. Okay? So what he's saying is they do know that I came from the Father and they do believe. And he goes on and says that in verse 8, For the words that which, thou hast given, which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understand that I came forth from thee, and they believe that thou didst send me. They truly understand that he came forth from God. They truly understand and know that he is God, that he came from God, and he came to represent God. They truly understand that. But they don't understand all that he is, has told them. And they will not understand until the Spirit of God comes upon them at Pentecost and they stand up and they declare the truth and the ramifications and the understanding of all that it meant for Jesus to come and die on the cross. But he is speaking that in favor of them having this saving faith that they do know. It says, I... It says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. So he's making clear that everybody understands and he, they understand that they have been saved, chosen, elect from God, given to him, and he has given them eternal life. This is different than the rest of the world. They are uniquely chosen of God and given to the Son, and the Son has given them eternal life, and they believe in the Father, and they believe in the Son, and this is not the same with the rest of the world. So those, his, his disciples, are a gift from the Father, and they have received eternal life, and he came for that purpose, but not for all. There is no universal salvation here. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for everyone in the world. He died for those that God had purposed to save and that God had chosen. His, his death on the cross paid the penalty for those whom God was applying the penalty to. If God had applied the death of Christ to every person on earth, there would be unrighteousness with God to send anyone to hell because the eternal son had paid for everybody's sin and therefore God would be an unjust God to send anyone to hell if Jesus had paid for their sins. So his death on the cross had unlimited power but it was focused on those whom God had purposed to apply his death to. And so the, 
the payment for sin is only for those whom God had purposed to save, and he died for those whom the Father had given to him. And that's why you have to understand that the, the, the atonement on the cross is not limited in power, it's limited in, or it's particular, it's, it's, it's for individuals whom God has purposed it for. It's not for everyone. That makes sense. But it, he says, for the disciples it has been. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them, and I am no more in the world. See, he's speaking like it's already happened, he's already been ascended, he's already out of the world, he's already accomplished everything. I am no longer here. So he, basically he's praying for his disciples as if it, of, of how it's going to be when he is gone. So when he ascends into heaven, this is the way it is. I'm, I'm gone. And you're still here. That's what he said. I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Okay, so this is going to be the situation. They know you. They know the Father. They have eternal life. But I am going to the Father. I'm going to, to ascend into heaven. And you're going to still be here. And so then he is praying. He's praying now to the Father to benefit them. To benefit them. He says... Yet they themselves are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that, thou, that they may be one, even as we are. Now, how are the disciples one? They become one person. So the same way that the disciples are one is the same way that the Trinity is one. You have three distinct persons of the Trinity that are all one because they are united in the same essence, united in the same, the same realm. So these disciples are one in that they are united in a relationship with God. They're united in the love that comes out of that relationship with God. They're united in the same faith. They're united in the same righteousness. All of their, their unity is based in the person of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus so what does the name represent? It's, just not, it's not just the name of Jesus. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're not praying and just adding his name on it to make it some kind of powerful prayer that goes through because it's attached to him. No, you're praying in the being, in the person, in the essence of who he is. So the name that has been given to the Son is the name in which we have righteousness, is the character, is the person, is the, is the righteousness, is the standing. When we are in Jesus, we have his character, we have his nature, we have his life. So when we're praying in the name of Jesus, or we're given the name of Jesus, we're given his being, his life, his eternal life is part of who we are now. So when we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, we're coming not because of who we are in the flesh, but we're coming because of who we are in Christ. We're coming to the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what it means when it says the name. It's not talking about Tom or Paul or any name. It's talking about the essence, the being, the life that flows from the character and the nature that is in you, who you really are. And because we are in Christ, we have the, the ability to go to the Father. And so he's praying to the Father to keep them in that same understanding of being in Christ, keep them, keep them in every way tied to the relationship they have with God. So he's praying for them that they would be kept, okay? 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So here you have the example. You have the fact that when Jesus was with his disciples and they had been given life through the Spirit of God, being born of God, and they were given life, they were protected and cared for and kept by the person of Jesus Christ while he was on the earth with them. Now he's going to the Father, and they're going to be granted the Holy Spirit to come upon them, and the Father is going to give them protection, and it is eternal security. It is not protection to not die physically. It is protection that they have, through faith, eternal security. The perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints, it is God who is going to accomplish their eternal life existing in heaven with him forever and ever and bring it to a reality just like when we hope, we have hope. It's not like we hope it happens. It is an assured thing that's happening. We are just waiting for the reality of that hope, that presence with God. And so we're kept through faith eternally. There's nothing that can change that. There's nothing that can take away that. There's nothing that can destroy the life that we have in Christ. You have eternal security because of God's keeping you and he keeps you through your faith that's been granted to you by, this, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is God who keeps us to where we cannot lose eternal life. It is impossible. So you, if you have come to know Christ and you have, are given the life that is in his name, that life can never be extinguished. That life can never be changed. That life will be brought into conformity. And that's why in Romans 8 it can be said that all those whom God foreknew before the foundation of the world, if he set his affection on you, he is predestined that you be conformed to his image. That means he's predestined that you be glorified and be with Christ in a glorified state forever and ever. And all those that he has predestined in that way, he has called them, which means it is a calling of the Holy Spirit to bring life into you. It is the being born again. It is being regenerated. So it is an effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit grants you eternal life or grants you life and brings you from deadness to life, and then because you have been granted that, that life of God, that nature of God in you, the response to God from that point on is faith because it has a nature that is God that is in you that responds to the word of God, responds to God. And by that response of faith that comes from you, he, calls, he justifies you or declares you to be righteous. And it's not your righteousness. It is that you are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ whom you have been brought into relationship with. And all those whom he has justified, he has glorified. There is no way that anyone that has been known of God from the foundation of the world cannot get to an eternal state with God in glory. It's impossible. So they're kept into eternal security. Except one. Now why was Judas not kept? Because the devil came into him. Because he did not repent. Okay. He was not known of God. He is like those in Matthew 7 that come to the great white throne judgment and they say, wait a minute, Lord. We're not supposed to be here. We prophesied in your name. We did all these things. We were identified with you. 
We were associated with you. We had some kind of reaction in, in religion with you. There was things going on that uh, tied us to you. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Look right here in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Your name is not in here. If your name was in here, you would not be here. From the foundation of the world, all the names of those whom God chose, all the names of God has foreknown are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and your name's not in here. I never knew you. So even though Judas was chosen to be a disciple of Christ, even though he was associated with the other disciples of Christ, and he walked with Jesus on this earth, he was typical or an example of those who identify themselves with the church or with Moses' law in the Old Testament, and yet they never knew God because they were never known of God. And so being a son of perdition means that you are in a lost state. Not a righteous state, not a redeemed state. You are in a lost state, a state of ruin. And so perdition is that place of ruin. It is a place of destruction. Not that it's annihilation. It's a place that is absent from God. And so it eventually will be the lake of fire that they will be in that is created for the devil and his fallen angels and all those who are not chosen of God that will not be chosen to eternity with God are children of perdition. Now, they have vastly different experiences on this life. You have people that are very moral, very good, very uh, trying to do good things all of their life, and you have people that are very evil. But they're all sons of perdition. Remember the, the, the narrow road and the broad road? Go back to Matthew 7 and just look at that narrow road versus the broad road. You enter the broad road by physical identification with Adam. Everyone that is entered into the human race is on the broad road. And the broad road leads where? To destruction. To eternal ruin. And so everybody that is, that is part of Adam's race is on that broad road. And if you don't find that narrow gate and get off of the broad road, you will end up where that broad road leads to. And the only way off is through a narrow gate. And that narrow gate is because it's narrow, because it only is those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so everyone is on that broad road. They're going down that broad road that leads to destruction. And then the Spirit of God opens up their heart and they see Jesus Christ. And they enter into that narrow gate by faith in Christ because their hearts have been changed by the Spirit of God, and they now can see the narrow gate. And they go through the narrow gate, and now they're on the narrow road. Where does the narrow road go to? Life eternal. Everyone that has gone through the narrow gate goes to where the destination of that road goes. So everyone that's on that narrow road or the, that road that, that you enter by the narrow gate is on the way to where it leads. It leads to eternal life. So if you're on that road, you cannot lose eternal life. If you're on the broad road, you end up where the broad road goes. But he's the only one that can show you that narrow road. Exactly. Road. You're, you're on, you're 
You're not seeing it. You're dead in your trespassing sins. You cannot see the narrow gate until the Spirit of God opens up your heart. And he's only going to do that to the ones that God has known before the foundation of the world. So no matter how much you do religiously on that broad road, until you get off the broad road, you're still going to end up where it goes. Now, when you get to the great white throne judgment, the books are going to be opened of everybody's life that's there. All the ones that are not born again are going to be there. And so the books are going to be opened up of the life. And so there's Hitler's life. Ooh, that's bad. So he's going to have a lot more punishment in the lake of fire for what he did in his life than someone that never did anything to harm anybody and tried to be the best they could be, but they still are dead in their trespasses and sins because they haven't been born again. So there's differences of punishment in hell because God is a just God and he will justly recompense you for every sin you commit. So unless Jesus Christ has paid for your sin debt in full, then you must pay it yourself. And that's why the books of the life of every individual that's ever lived that's not been born again will be there at the, judge, at the Great White on Judgment and their, their life will be evaluated and he will have a just payment for every sin that was sinned. Because he's a just God. Back to John 17, he says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me. I guarded them, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I was not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify them myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. So here he gets to the prayer, the practical prayer, and the prayer is for protection in this world because the world is going to hate them. Right? We're in the world. Satan is the god of this world. Satan's kingdom and Satan's power and Satan's desire is to destroy everything that is of God. So Satan hates you and hates all those that believe in Jesus Christ, that believe in God. And the world that is Satan's world will hate you for the same reason. You will have persecution. You will have uh, all kinds of things of hatred from you. So Jesus Christ is praying, first of all, for joy. They were praying for their joy. Now, the disciples are fixing to be scattered, right? Jesus is going to be arrested. They're not having joy. They're scattered. They're fearful. They don't know what's happening. They've, they have forgotten everything Jesus said. They're, they're not living in faith. They're living in fear. But then when the Spirit of God comes at Pentecost, these uneducated fishermen, these uneducated common people are going to be filled with the power and the knowledge of God and they're going to stand up and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're going to do it with joy 
in the midst of their suffering, they're going to do it with joy. Because the joy is not tied to this physical life. It's not tied to this time. It's just like when Jesus Christ endured the cross. The cross wasn't joyful. Here you had Almighty God, eternal God, perfectly righteous, holy God, taking on sin and dying and having the Father turn His back on the Son. A separation of eternal God because of sin. That wasn't joyful. But he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy of what was to come. The same way the disciples. They didn't endure the hardships of being an apostle and having themselves subject to being martyred and, and beaten and stoned and all the things that Paul went through and the apostles went through. They didn't, that wasn't joyful. But knowing why they were doing it and knowing what they were representing caused them to have joy. And they were united together in that joy. So he, he prays that their joy may be full, that they may understand the fullness of their relationship with Christ, and it might cause them to have joy, and they might therefore be united together in the pursuit of the ministry that God has called them to do in laying the foundation for the bride of Christ, the, the church. And so they are joyfully doing what God called them to do, and he's praying for them for that. And then he prays for them that they would... Uh, would be able to resist the, the persecution and the temptation that comes from the evil one. So they need to have power. And that's what he told them when he was going to be ascending into heaven. He said, wait in Jerusalem until what was promised of you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, would come upon you so that you may have power to be my witnesses. So they had to have power to overcome, power to withstand the temptation, power to be able to live without sin, and be able to give a clear testimony of Jesus Christ. And so he, he is praying that they would have the power to overcome sin and, and not succumb to Satan's temptations. Satan is a mighty deceiver, and he has uh, great power to come against you. All his fiery darts, and, John, and Paul said, told him in Ephesians, stand firm because Satan's going to try you. Satan's going to tempt you. Satan's going to test you. Stand firm in the word of God. And that's what he's praying that these would stand firm in, and be kept from the temptations and the, the ruses and the deceptions of the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And what does that mean? To be sanctified in the truth. Preserved. Set apart, preserved, be completed, or be completely filled with the truth. So when Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the word of God is truth, and the Spirit of God takes the word of God, which is truth, and he makes it part of who you are. In other words, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed in your minds, thinking clearly, thinking rightly, thinking on the truth. And the more the truth becomes a part of who you are, the more grounded you are, the more set apart you are, the more sanctified you are, because the Word of God, the truth of God, has become who you are. And the more you immerse yourselves in the Word of God, 
and let the Spirit of God take that Word of God and implant it deep into your soul so that your responses, your actions, your thoughts, your mind is all consuming with the Word of God and therefore reflecting on the Word of God. And as you do that, you repent of any sinful thoughts and the Spirit of God controls you or fills you and you have a prayer without ceasing attitude to where you're walking with God daily all the time Praying without ceasing, but the Spirit of God is guiding you and leading you and controlling you and teaching you and putting these words to reality as you live out the truth of who you are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying to his disciples that they would be sanctified in truth, that the Spirit of God would take the truth of the Word of God and so apply it to their hearts and lives that they would be completely set apart as God's witnesses, as God's messengers, as God's church, his bride, Filled with the Spirit of God so that they will know how to live out the reality of Christ in me. And it's no longer, Paul said, it's no longer I live but Christ in me. I'm living out the reality of who Jesus Christ is because it is so implanted in my heart of who he is by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God who is giving me that unction from him. We fall so short. We fall so short because we do not apply this prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples. And then he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Jesus Christ, when he's praying this prayer, had you on his mind. He was praying for you. He's praying for everyone that becomes a part of the body of Christ through the testimony of his apostles. Just like he prayed for them specifically, he's praying for each and every one of you specifically by name because the Father has given you to him. Just like he gave the apostles to him, he has given you to him and therefore he was praying for you at the same time he's praying for them. You haven't been born yet. You haven't been born again yet, but he knows you from the, before the beginning of the world and he's praying for you that you would be sanctified in the truth that you would be kept from the evil one and that you would have your joy filled in the way that you live out your life for the glory of God. It's real. It's personal. It's to us. This is not some Christian religion that we go back and just, that was for the apostles. No. He was praying for you. Right before he goes to the cross. It's like you were sitting there with the, with the disciples on the Mount of Olives and Jesus Christ is lifting up his eyes to heaven, his heart to heaven, and he's praying to the Father and he's praying for you and your name is included in his prayer even though you haven't been born yet. So the very same things he's praying for the apostles, he's praying for you. And he says that they all may be one. So when Paul is talking about that in the Ephesians church, and he's, he's talking about the giftedness and the things that the Father has given to the church and the ones that are, that are going to lead the church and start the church and then continue the church. And he says there in chapter 4, he says in verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to, and to, look to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
that we may all be one in the knowledge of God, in the love of God, in the purpose of God, in the fulfillment of His calling us out to be a part of the body of Christ. There's one body. We're all one. And He has gifted each of us to be for the benefit of the entire body so that when we come together, there is a fullness of God in us through the giftedness of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and he explains that. He said in verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. So he started out the church and laying the foundation by these apostles and prophets to write the finished word of God, to complete the New Testament writings so that we would have the word of God to read and to study and to draw from. And the spirit of God would take that and make it real in our lives. And then as some as pastors and teachers to continue to teach this word for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, we are the people of God. We are the church of God. We are to grow up in unity and in faith, and we're not to be weak. We're not to be carried along by Satan's attempts to distort and to change the truth. We're to grow up and be mature so that we can be united together in the truth and not be caught up in schemes of deceitful scheming by Satan to destroy the world. The church has not got a good history. Even the early church. Read the letters to the seven churches in Ephesus, I mean in Revelation. Ephesus, they, they left their first love. They didn't continue. It's a hard work. But we're called to do that, to be one in Christ. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. There is a purpose behind everything that Jesus did when he called his apostles, his disciples to become apostles, to start the foundation of the church so the church might represent him on earth as his body and, and live out the reality of the name of Jesus Christ, the character, the essence, the power, the person of who we are in Christ. So that the world may believe that thou didst send me whether the world wants to accept Jesus Christ or not, they need to know that the church represents Jesus Christ in such a way that the world, even in their sin, might know that these people know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the way they live demonstrates that they know that, and the world does not want to hear it. They don't want to see it because they know that if this is demonstrated, that they are under the judgment of God because they have refused to believe in the Son of God. So the world, the church, has a, has a responsibility to be ambassadors for Christ, to be His witnesses so that He may bring in the elect of God and to demonstrate to the world that is not the elect of God that God, that Jesus Christ came from the Father and represented the Father perfectly and He is the Son of God and He's going to be their judge. The world needs to know that if they do not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to see Him as their judge. And if they see the church being the church in the real way that's supposed to be, the, the world does know. If we are demonstrating the truth of God, the world does know that there is a God and He's going to judge them. 
Make no mistake about it. That's why they hate Christians that are not hypocrites. Because it demonstrates to them that everything that Jesus said was true and everything the church is, is representing him to be is true and they don't want to hear it. 